Uh, last week, we were working through Joshua, and we did the second chapter in Joshua. And it's so powerful to say this statement, but it's even more powerful if you believe it. That the grace of God can change anyone. And if you believe that with all your heart, it, it challenges. Like somebody in the room, somebody in the room may struggle that God could never forgive me. Well, that message last week was for that person. Yes, God can take anyone. Uh, the, the other thing is uh, a person that might think that there's somebody outside the grace of God. Well, that message was for that person because the reality was you take, you take a person who, who is like Rahab, been in prostitution, maybe they're in drugs and addiction, and they come to the foot of the cross, they're put on the same footing, the same ground as a person that spent their whole life serving God, preaching in a pulpit, right? The, the cross is the thing that puts us on equal ground, that we have no righteousness of our own, but it's all of him, Right, And so I love the story, uh, very beginning said that the son, Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly in the Shittim as spies saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. They weren't going there for immoral purposes. It doesn't say anywhere in the word about that, but it was a strategic thing. But I see something so much greater is that there was absolutely the provision of God on behalf of this woman and her family. And so uh, she hid them, she covered for them, and it said the men, he, she, she said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. And she knew that the land was theirs. And she was letting them know. You remember last week, if you know that your enemy is struggling and fearful, that people are, everyone in the land is melting away before the strength of Israel. Well, they're fearing the God of Israel, right? Imagine if you knew before you fought or played against Martinsburg High School. And I keep bringing it up and Phil Selby's getting more mad every week I mention Martinsburg, Right? But they've won 56 straight games, had, had four state titles, and I hope now that the coach is gone, that stops, right? And so all that to say, if you found out the night before you were playing this invincible team that they're scared to death of you guys, would that change how you play against them? Absolutely. Absolutely. The problem, you see invincible people. There's giants in the land. You just assume that you're beaten before you even take the field. Then you're going to lose the game. And so God allowed them to see. God told Joshua, and he, he said, trust me. Right? And so, spoiler alert that I've mentioned last week, and we're going to cover it next week, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. But Jericho, the walls came tumbling down all except for one part of the wall. You know where it was? God extended the grace to a woman who was a pagan prostitute. She was a Gentile outside the promises of God. She was an enemy of Israel, right? And so God extended his grace to somebody like that. It's all a picture of the church. That's such a beautiful picture. The, the word of God in Ephesians, it says this, 
that remember that you are at a separate... At, let me back that up again. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Right? And he says this, verse 19 says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. The most beautiful picture is God took Rahab and grafted her into his line. Jesus' heritage came through a woman named Rahab. And so powerful word uh, we ended with last week. So no matter who you are or what you've done, the grace of God can change anyone, including you. And so if you, if you want to listen back last week, um, I encourage you if you're struggling in that area. Um, but we're going to move on into a new phase. Uh, chapter 3 is exciting times. Before we go into chapter 3, I want you to think about a couple things. All right, and, and some of these things, many of you probably heard these things and thought about this, but I'd love to share this. It may be new to some of you. Uh, you think about Moses and Joshua. Let's think about the similarities and how they got their start in leadership, right? I put down just four things as I was thinking through that they were both commissioned by God, right? God set aside Moses for his people. He called him in a burning bush. Well, then again, Joshua, same thing. They both turned in their first days of leadership. They turned the people to the word, right? They both sent spies into the land. That was their first thing that they did, both of them. They've come into the land, they sent spies. And then last but not least, they both led the people across a body of water that was on dry ground. There's all these significant things in the story that, that when you sit and think about the spiritual significance to us in 2020, it is so powerful. So I wanna, I wanna retrace our steps very quickly. I want you to think about Egypt. Think about what Egypt was like. They were, they were slaves held in bondage, doing hard labor, that, that they were under taskmasters. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like somebody that is lost without Jesus in this world? That they're, they're slaves to sin? That there's nothing they can't do? They're, they're at the beck, begging call of, of Satan himself? Ephesians chapter 2 mentions that. That, that another place in, in 2 Timothy mentions that the lost are ensnared by the devil who are taken captive by his will. It's a powerful picture of a person who is lost and they can only sin continually. And then you turn, they, they set, God is leading them out, but yet they were not set free from their enemy until they got to a place called the Red Sea. Have you ever considered this? 
Think about the Red Sea. They come to the point and the enemy is pursuing them and they come to a dead end and they said, you've brought us here to die. But God made a way. God parted the seas and gave them a way of salvation. That's a place of deliverance. It's a, it's a very powerful picture of a person who trusts Jesus as their Savior. It's a picture of somebody that, that God has opened the seas. And, and you think in terms of the picture that the, the waters represent the wrath of God. The enemy pursuing them represents Satan. And so they're fleeing for their lives, running for freedom from their enemy. And they come to the wrath of God. And that's that moment as a, as a lost person, you're sitting in the pew and you hear the gospel and you acknowledge that the enemy is pursuing me and I'm, I'm condemned by the wrath of God. I've got nowhere to go. And then God is the one that makes a way of salvation. He parts the Red Sea so much so that they walked across dry ground that the wrath of God didn't even touch their feet. They were untouched by the wrath of God and they walked through his wrath on dry, on, on dry ground. And the same wrath that they were spared from came crashing down on their enemy. Isn't that powerful? You think about the Red Sea, it, it should invoke in you like, it was all of God, right? Your salvation is all of God. You Calvinists in the room are praising God because I just said that, right? But listen, they could have stood... They could have stood in Egypt. So God made a way of salvation, but they had to trust. They had to walk. And if there's a way that you can formulate in your mind, why I'm, I'm not entirely a Calvinist, I'm not entirely, or something more, it could be both. It is both, I believe. It's a great picture of salvation. And so you think about what it takes to trust. We're supposed to walk through that. Well, you really don't have much of a choice. You're going to die one way. Like, you feel like dead end. And so we enter the, the wilderness. And we'll call this a place of defeat. Uh, a, a journey that would take 11 days. Took 40 years. There was grumbling. Uh, they were walking in unbelief. They were set free from the enemy. The enemy's dead in the bottom of the Red Sea. But yet they're walking in unbelief. And because they are walking in unbelief and not trusting God moment by moment, they're not able to lay hold of all that God has promised them. I see this. It's a place of constant defeat. God is still leading you. God is still feeding you. He's delivering you. And they were sustained by God, but God intended so much for them in the wilderness. And that, man, that is the testimony of so many believers. You've trusted in God. You're saved. He's sustaining you day by day. But you know you are not laying hold of victories in life that he has promised to you might be late at night and everybody's in bed and you're alone with your phone and you know that that is not the abundant life that God promised for you. 
You may be on your same phone, and, and I know this, I, I just shared, it's a struggle with guys that hold their phone late at night and are alone. They're not walking in the victory that God has promised for them. At the same time, you can be on here, and social media is the greatest thing that causes a struggle of comparison. Is that the abundant life that God has promised to you? You see, when you're not trusting and moment by moment, you feel like it's, it feels like bondage. But yet you're set free from the enemy. You're born again. The enemy's dead. But yet you're not walking in the victory that he's promised you. And so that land, this is crazy. You can, you can just trust him and start walking in victory if you just believe him, right? That, they come across here, and it's 11 days, and you're in the promised land. But yet it was 40 years. And the crazy thing is, the reason life wasn't so good in the wilderness is because God didn't want him to stay there. That's not what he intended. He intended for us to trust him. And so we come to this, this second crossing. And this is so significant. It's a, it's a place of death, but it might be a different idea of a place of death than you've ever thought about. You think about the Jordan River crossing the Chile Jordan. What do you think about? There's a number of songs that have been planted in our mind that the, the Jordan represents death and you cross into this promised land that God's promised. That's heaven. I hope there's no battles in heaven. I hope there's no defeat in heaven. Right? I hope there's not sin in heaven. It's a pretty tough picture of heaven. If that's what you think, that the Jordan represents chilly waters that lead you, death leads you into heaven. But the death that we're talking about, look at this. Um, Romans chapter 8 says it this way. Who represents the law? Moses. Right? In our minds, when every time the law is referenced normally in the New Testament, it referenced in parallel with Moses. Right? Where did Moses die? In the wilderness. That enable, and for them to be enabled to walk in and trust, something had to die to enable them to cross over. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. What I can do in my strength as a believer in Jesus, I, I'm just going to grab it by the horns and put my work boots on and do my best to live for God. For God has done what the law cannot do because it's weakened by the flesh. By sending his own son in the likeness of flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. Listen to this. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled. That doesn't say by me. That doesn't say, I'm going to pick up the law again, and I'm going to do my best to live the Christian life. I'm going to struggle and toil, and, and now that I'm saved, I'm saved by, the, by, by the grace, not of works, lest any man should boast, right? I, I'm saved by grace, but now that I'm saved, I'm going to pick up this Bible and try to do my best to keep on living for God. 
I'm going to try to do things for him. The reality is, the beauty is, the victories in this promised land that we're going to talk about aren't because of Joshua. It's not because of his great strength as a warrior leader. It's because of God. The righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Another place that says this, Galatians 2, says, For though the law, through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. Right? I died to the law when I trusted Christ as my Lord and Savior. What the law required of me, I couldn't do. But praise God, Jesus did. And a divine exchange happened when I turned over my unrighteousness onto the cross of Jesus and he gave me his righteousness. So it's not because I did the law, it's because I died to the law so I might live to God. So I've been crucified with Jesus. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He's alive in you today if you are a follower of Jesus. And listen, the life I now live in the flesh. I woke up this morning, I'm living life in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. But listen, I don't nullify the grace of God. If righteousness comes through the law, by me doing, now that I'm born again, if righteousness comes by me trying to do for God the law that I've been set free from, listen, then I don't need the living Jesus. Then Christ died for no purpose. Some translations say that Christ is dead. If I don't need his righteousness to live today, if I don't need his life in me to live moment by moment trusting him in dependence, then I don't need... I don't need him. I'm good enough. Love what he says. Are you so foolish? He's calling out the Gentiles, the next chapter, uh, the, the Galatians. Having begun in the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And so the challenge as we walk to this second crossing, we're crossing into a place of dependence. The reason I say very boldly about that is because you read through Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 and it points you back to this today. Don't waste this moment. Walk by faith. Trust him. Believe. Obey. So the promised land is not really a good picture of heaven because there's battles, because there's death, because there's sin, because there's AI. Yeah. Achan, who sinned, it's coming, right? If they thought that that was a picture of heaven, they wouldn't be looking forward to heaven. So the picture is an abundant life that Jesus has promised. Uh, you look at this, does that look like good living? You look, obviously, they took the victory there, but it only came by God. We'll talk about that next week. But Jesus said this, I am come that they may have life that they may have it more abundantly. The abundant land, the promised land. This is what Jesus was talking about. And so I, I want you to turn. I know that, that was your intro, okay? Uh, Joshua chapter three, this is very encouraging to me. So many powerful pictures. 
Now, Joshua chapter 3, the second crossing. There was a, a moment where they crossed, and then there's another moment they crossed, both on dry ground. This one's unique. This one, the, the seas weren't parted, and then they walked. This one, they had to step and trust. And when they stepped and trusted, then it parted. And so Joshua chapter 3, verse 1. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, like your dad. Did you ever go on vacation? Your dad's like, come on, we got to leave at 4 o'clock or else we're going to get in traffic. All right? <laughs> dad, I know it's 4 is pretty early, but anyway. Okay. They rose early in the morning. He's so passionate about what God is about to do, even though he has no clue what God is about to do. He just knows God's about to do something. They set out from Shittim, and they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel. It says that uh, and they came to the Jordan, all, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. And they lodged there three days, by the way. They're looking at this river that's overflowing, and they're thinking, how in the world is this going to go down? There's no way we can cross over to the land, but God told us we're going to. And so they're sitting there listening, just clinging to this. And, I, and this is where I want you to see in, in Joshua chapter 3, trust in the promise. God made a promise. Do you trust him? Trust is not based on what you know, but what you believe, right? When you trust the promise, you obey. When you don't trust the promise, you don't obey. You just turn around and go back to the wilderness. And just in, in context, have you ever, I'm a pretty hefty fella, and they say, all right, put this harness on, trust us, it'll hold you. Right, and this little strap's that big, and you're harnessed in, and there's this one little hook right here. Trust us, that can hold you. Okay, and there's a carabiner that has metal that's that thick. A carabiner is one of those clips. Trust us, that can hold your weight. Right, and so you get these cables. These will hold you, don't worry. And that, that pulley system, it'll hold you. And, and listen, if I don't trust that any of those things are, some of you freaked out just thinking about this. If I don't think that any one of these things can't hold me, I'm not jumping. But if I believe them that that's going to hold me, I'm up for an adventure. I'm up for trusting. Some of you guys are always up for adventure at, at any risk, right? But, but here, uh, I love what Warren Wiersbe says. says. Unbelief says, let's go back to where it's safe. You see the person clinging to the tree. Or what, the, before, the, before the zip line. Let's go back to where it's safe. But faith says, let's go forward to where God is working. You miss out on the promises of God when you're clinging to, to, for fear about where you are. And so it says in chapter two, or verse 2, At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by Levitical priests, then you shall set out from the place and follow it. The presence of God. Just a picture of the presence of God going before them. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits. 
Translation, 3,000 feet. 3,000 feet, about. That's like 1,000 yards, which is like 10 football fields. You're 10 football fields behind this, just over a half of a mile. And so it's way out in length before. It says, do not come near it in order that you may know, that you may see it the way you should go. For you have not passed that way before. It's like when you're on a hike, by the way, and there's that one kid that thinks he knows where we're going. And you let him go out in front and you're just smiling because you know you're about to turn this way. He doesn't know. He just wants to lead. He has no clue where he's going. Right? That's the nation of Israel. They have no clue how this is going to go down. They just told us to trust the presence of God and walk in obedience. Believe. Then Joshua said to the people, consecrate yourselves. He didn't say, get your swords ready. He didn't say, build a couple paddle boats. He said, consecrate, humble yourselves, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. He was expecting that God would do something great. He knew it. And Joshua said to the priests, take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on, cross overhead before the, before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant, went before the people, and the Lord said to Joshua, today I will begin to exalt you, Joshua, in the sight of all Israel. That they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, Joshua, command the priests who bear the ark and the covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. Step into it. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, here is how... You shall know that the living God is among you. And he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites. Right? The, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Gershites, the Amorites, and the Debuzites. These are all people, all Canaanites in the land. Right? And so he's saying, by the way that you see that we're going to trust him, that's going to be the thing that tells the people. That God's going to give you the victory in the battles you're about to fight. That this step of faith where you're trusting him walking into the the Jordan River, this is going to prove it. And they knew without a shadow of a doubt that God without fail will drive them out. All right. Without beyond a shadow of a doubt. If if a restaurant gives you a 100% guarantee in their product, satisfaction guarantee, right? Some of them you trust. If they say, if you're, not, if you're 99% satisfied, we'll make sure it's 100 before you leave, right? All right? And they have a reputation for that, right? Okay, other places, you go to a gas station, they said, our sushi is so good, 100% you're going to be satisfied when you leave. Are you going to trust that promise? I'd be scared for my life, first of all. Uh, but, but God has a reputation for fulfilling his promise. God, God's going to do it. It's whether you trust him or not. 
even though he has a reputation, that they're trusting Joshua's leadership because Joshua is trusting God's leadership. And I love this. Why in the world would they trust a God who's going to wipe people out? How could God do this to the Canaanites? He's a good God. How could God wipe out whole peoples? Some people in today's world especially say, I could never follow a God that wipes out people, wipes out whole nations. The question is not why God chose to destroy these sinners, but why he had let them live so long and why all sinners are not destroyed far sooner than they are. It is grace that allows any sinner to draw one more breath of life. We're all appointed to die. Not one person is going to be exempt from death. And the thought that God did that to these people, listen, he prolonged it. You think about Rahab. Had he not prolonged, her family would not be saved. It's such a powerful picture to think that God would wipe a whole nation out. It's for his grace that he didn't do it sooner. I don't know if you feel that weight before a holy God. It says, behold, the ark of the covenant of all the earth is passing over before you, leading the way. God is leading them into the land. Now, therefore, take 12 men from tribes of Israel, from each tribe. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters. When they step in, The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. And as soon as those bearing the ark has come as far as the Jordan, the feet of the priest bearing the ark were dipped in. They're submerged into the water. And the water is overflowing in all its banks throughout the time of harvest. Uh, Can you imagine stepping into the Ohio River mid-March? Right? You'd be a crazy person. Right? There's no way. Well, first of all, I don't know if I'd step my foot in there anyway, because I might have a growth when I come out. But, but, but all that saying, you're, you're stepping into a body of water that is so swollen, like you couldn't walk across this thing. You had to trust. So the waters coming down from above stood. Um, I mixed up. You guys were off board, right? Here's a picture of the waters, but all right. I'm getting back online. <laughs> all right. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan. By the way, it's 15 miles upstream. That's, that's a big area of dry land to cross over. Imagine 2 million people crossing over, though. Over 2 million people. There's a 15-mile stretch that's completely dry and heaped up. It says, and those, those waters flowing to the sea, they were cut off. The people passed over Jericho, just like at the Red Sea, right? They crossed over on dry ground. But here, it's a test to see, do you really, do you really trust me? Do the priests trust the promises of God? Is there any hesitation in their steps? They they go to take the first step, and the waters part. 
priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on what kind of ground? It didn't. It didn't. It didn't take a night for the wind blowing like at Red Sea before it all dried out. It was dried immediately. It stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan and all Israel passed over on dry ground till all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan. Two million people crossing over. Do you trust the promises? Do you trust the promises of God? I, I turn to chapter four and this one we're gonna go even faster through. I, I, I probably won't read all of it, but I do want you to see just such a crazy, and this should be a sermon on itself, by the way. Um, the 12 stones, the, the two memorials. But as we cross over, the, this is a testify, they're testifying of the, the provision of God. They, they trusted the promise of God, and now this is a testimony of God's provision on their behalf. I want you to see it. How many of you are, got, are you speed readers? Can you read fast? We're going to read fast because I want you to see this. It's so powerful. It's going to come to a point. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, take 12 men from the people, from each tribe, a man. Uh, it's crazy. Think about Jesus. Where was he baptized? In the Jordan River. What did he do right after, soon after he was baptized? Picked 12 men. It's crazy how many parallels here, but, uh, you know, Joshua is very much a typology of Jesus himself. But why was, you see, Judas, uh, Judas failed Jesus, right? And he, he hung himself. And, and it's crazy, you get a guy like Paul, who was apostle, born out of due season. Why was he so motivated to replace Judas? Why did he raise up a man to replace him? Because this is a picture of spiritual Israel. That what God was doing in the nation of Israel was foreshadowing what he's doing with us. He command them saying, take 12 stones... From out of the midst of the Jordan. And it says there that the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly. And bring them over with you and lay them down in a place where you lodge tonight. So they're supposed to dig out of the, the ground and it's dry ground. They're supposed to, each man is supposed to pick up a rock. The one place that said they're supposed to put it on their shoulder. And they're supposed to carry that to where they're going to they're gonna stay overnight, which is Gilgal. And so they, they carry this. And Joshua took the 12 and uh, led them. And verse 5 says, Joshua said, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan. In other words, they're all across. Said, Pass back over and take a stone on your shoulder according to the number of tribes. Why? Because this is going to be a sign among you. When your children ask you, to, uh, ask in time to come, what do those stones mean to you? So what he's about to do in Gilgal for generations later is going to show them something powerful that God did on their behalf. Then you shall tell them the waters of the Jordan were cut off from before the Ark of the Covenant. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan cut off. So the stones shall be the people of Israel a memorial forever. 
The people did just like uh, Joshua commanded. And Joshua set up the 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan. And think about this. I want you to see this picture. I'm going to keep it on there. Take 12 stones from in the river, carry them into the promised land, set them up in Gilgal. But before they left that spot, Joshua went back into the Jordan River and he took 12 stones and placed them in the midst of the Jordan. There's an intentionality here that, that he took stones out and took it into the promised land, set it up, and before he left, he took stones that are in the promised land already and placed them in the Jordan. I want you to think on that a minute. The priest bearing the ark stood in the midst and until everything had done, uh, verse 11, and when all the people of Israel had passed over the ark of the Lord and the priest passed over before the people. It says in verse, uh, verse 13, or verse 14, on the day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, they stood in awe of him just as they stood in awe of Moses in the days of his life. And the Lord said to Joshua, command the priests bearing the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. They came out of the Jordan, and what happened? Immediately, immediately when they came off, the water returned to their place and overflowed the banks as before. That, that when the presence of God went before, the, that it was again consumed, and the, the people came up out of the Jordan, and then that night, in verse 20, that was really quick, by the way. That night, they set up the rocks in Gilgal. So why 12 stones? Why in Gilgal? Well, we already found that out. Gilgal, it, it said uh, a couple verses, verses ago, it said uh, it's just a reminder to Israel and the world about what God had done. So why the 12 stones in the river? Why would God do that? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized in Christ, buried in Christ, have been baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that as Christ was just raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That whole picture, they took the, the stones that were in the river that, that deserved the wrath, deserved the flow, deserved to be buried, took it out and placed it in Gilgal, the promised land. Looking forward to the victory that we have, it's because something took our place. Someone took our place. That's why Jesus, who's walking in the fullness and newness of life, he became sin for us and he was buried. The one who was perfect was buried in death. Such a powerful picture of Jesus. Schofield said this, the memorials mark the distinction between Christ's death under judgment in the believer's place and the believer's perfect deliverance from judgment. This is all a picture of a victorious life 
an abundant life that God has promised for every believer. I want you to think about this. Imagine I got a brand new, brand new Chevy Camaro. I say Chevy, I'm sorry, Ford drivers. By the way, I tried to look for somebody pushing a Chevy and I couldn't find them because they're all running. Okay? Sorry. All right. But imagine somebody pulls up and says, he says, man, check out my new Camaro. It's beautiful. I, pulled it, I pushed it up here this morning and uh, check it out. It looks awesome. Yeah, it looks great. Yeah. And, and so imagine day after day, he never puts gasoline in the tank. And day after day, he gets up every morning and pushes his car to work, goes and works a full day and pushes it back. And you're like, that's not what it was intended for. I don't, how do you say that kindly? Like, that's the idea that I'm a good person. I'm working good. I'm working on my life, trying to get myself back together. That's the picture. And every believer in the room would say, it's not of works by the law that you're born again. You don't get the Holy Spirit in you because you're a good person. Right? You're not, you're not born again by the things that you do. So you could be struggling and doing the best that you can to push that car around, but you're not fulfilling its purpose, right? More terrifying thought, maybe not more terrifying. Could you imagine if you filled that Camaro up with gasoline, has a full tank of gas, and you see that person, man, he's got a full tank of gas, brand new car, and you see him pushing that car to work. You're like, dude... All you have to do is get in and push the gas pedal, and it's what it's made for, right? That's, that's the picture of somebody going back to the law, that I'm going to try my hardest to please God. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to do things for him. I'm going to do all these things for God, but God is not pleased by your doing. God is only pleased by faith. God is not pleased by you pulling up your work boots and doing something for him. He wants to do something in you. He wants to do something through you. It's him, his working in you. I'm weak. I'm still flesh. But the flesh, I know I live by the faith of the son of God who loved me and died for me. And so the call to every believer right now When we cross the Jordan River, you're saying, man, I know I'm born again. I know that I'm, 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 you know, God's sustaining me. Like he fed me this week. I'm doing life. And, but you know, you're not living in abundance. You know that there's areas of your life that you're struggling to trust him because you struggle to trust him. You say, well, I can't really believe him in that area of my life. Then you're stuck in a place of defeat. And the answer isn't. The answer isn't try to work harder to get out of that place of defeat. You know what the answer is? Die to yourself. Die to the law. That I can't do something to please him. My call today, it's an absolute adventure to just say, I've got nothing to bring to the table. But God, you have given me life and I trust you.
You imagine getting in a car and using it for what it's intended for. That God had set us up with the purpose of having the Holy Spirit in us. That where we go, it's of his doing. And so I call you, this is, this is your takeaway today. I just said it a minute ago. The only thing that pleases God is faith. You might be doing a lot of good works as a believer, but are you doing them in faith? Are you trusting him? Are you rolling up your sleeves and putting your work boots on for Jesus and still struggling in sin, still struggling to live victoriously? All the promises that God has given you, yeah, I appreciate those, but I'm going to try to make it through. So I, I ask you, do you trust him right now? Are you dependent on him for moment by moment? Is he, is he life to you or is he just religion? You wake up in his presence this morning and commune with him. That's the call of the Jordan River, the second crossing.